We've been in our series on the book of Genesis since mid-October, and today will be our 13th sermon in this series. We've taken several detours to explore how these early chapters of Genesis, related especially to creation, have been utilized by other biblical authors. So it might seem surprising to find ourselves only today coming to the end of Genesis chapter 3. Nevertheless, here we are. We've explored together God's acts of creation, as Moses recorded them by the Holy Spirit's direction for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. From chapter 1, we learned that God created the universe over the span of six days, and he saw that everything he made was very good. This included the unique creation of humanity on day 6 of creation week, creating one male and one female to serve together as his image in this world. And he blessed them and equipped them to rule the rest of creation on his behalf and to multiply so as to further reflect God's glory across the planet. Then on the seventh day, God rested from his creative acts. In chapter 2 then, Moses provided an instant replay of day 6 of creation week, zooming in on the creation of humanity. There we learned that God utilized dust from the land to make the man. And then he placed the man in a garden, especially planted and developed for his care and use, commissioning him to provide priestly service to God, who would dwell just beyond the garden in a place called Eden. God granted the man abundant provision in the garden, but he identified one tree that was off limits for human consumption, commanding the man very clearly to not eat fruit from the knowing good and evil tree. The man then named the animals and discovered his own aloneness, his own incompleteness, which God remedied by building a woman from his own flesh and bones. God then united them together in marriage, painting a picture of the future marriage of God's eternal son. As some of our biblical detours outside of Genesis demonstrated, the creation of humanity in this way, in this sequence, established a foundational authority structure, whereby God intends men to serve as the head of of their households, which means each man is to exercise a measured authority in service to and for the benefit of his wife and children. Likewise, this pattern is to be replicated among God's people so that in the church, the household of God, only men equipped and qualified by the Holy Spirit are to aspire to the office of elder to provide authoritative biblical teaching and leadership, especially as expressed in regular gatherings. At the conclusion of Genesis 2, all is well. At the end of day 6 of creation week, everything is as it should be. But then, as we saw last week, suddenly a speaking serpent appears in the garden, apparently looking for trouble. There's nothing in the narrative, as far as I can tell, that indicates any time has passed. Instead, it seems that while God is resting from his creative acts on the seventh day, humanity faces their first test. A threat emerges. As we saw last week, Adam, in particular, fails to do his duty. He fails to challenge the serpent or to expel the serpent or to kill the serpent. Any of these would have been appropriate actions. The serpent deceived and tempted his wife with him apparently standing passively by. Thus, the serpent overturned the created order. As later, Scripture makes clear an evil entity, a dark power, spoke through the serpent and enabled this animal to lead the woman astray. And the woman then exercised authority over her husband, and he submitted to her without a fight. She took, she ate, 
She gave, and he ate, fruit from the knowing good and evil tree, the one edible delight in a garden of delights that was off-limits. Their eating resulted in a change in their nature. Shame now colored their relationship, and they sought to hide their naked bodies from each other. But as other scriptures tell us, they have transgressed their covenant relationship with their covenant Lord, Yahweh Elohim, as Moses refers to him in this section. They have sinned. They have disobeyed. They have fallen. What should we expect of Yahweh's response? We pick up the story right here in Genesis 3, 8 to 13. Moses shows how the creator, the provider, the giver of all good things now shows up in the garden as the divine judge. In these verses, we witness his interrogation of the now naked and ashamed couple. Let's listen in on the interrogation. And they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh Elohim called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh Elohim said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They covered themselves with fig leaves to hide their bodies from each other, but now they scamper off into the trees to hide from God. Adam admits that the reason he hides is that he is afraid. But why? In his nakedness, he felt vulnerable. He exposed, threatened by the appearance of the Lord. If they had really become like God, as the serpent assured them that they would when they ate the fruit, then they shouldn't have a reason to be afraid of him, right? They could welcome God as an equal. Clearly, things have not turned out the way they expected. Now, verse 8 has a few interesting features that I'd like to draw our attention to. The innocuous way our English Bibles translate the description of God's arrival might be leading us to imagine this situation quite differently than Moses intends it. Clearly, Adam and his wife feel threatened when they hear the Lord's arrival. And many students of Scripture jump to the conclusion that it's because they know that they're in trouble. Their guilty conscience compels them to hide. However, Moses never mentions the issue of guilt explicitly in this passage. Certainly, it is implied. They are guilty. But Moses' description focuses on other aspects of the reality. In verse 10, when Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, he suggests that the very sound itself was frightening. I think the phrases walking in the garden and in the cool of the day both lead us to imagine a nice, peaceful context. The word translated cool is never translated this way elsewhere. In fact, it's the normal word for spirit or wind. It's possible that Moses could be describing a breezy part of the day, but many students of Scripture have pointed out the weirdness of understanding it this way. Instead, given the context, we might should imagine a great windstorm being described. God arrives in the garden in the form of a terrifying tornado as he comes to inspect his people, knowing full well what they have done. 
He has come for the purpose of calling them to account. Adam's fear may be in line with the Israelites' fear at the foot of Mount Sinai. They heard the sound of Yahweh on top of the mountain. Most versions will use the word voice in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy when that event is being described, but it's the same Hebrew word. And that sound, if you remember, was thunderous, accompanied by fire and lightning and loud trumpet blasts. This might be similar to what Adam heard as the divine judge comes to interrogate his rebellious vice-regents. And of course they'd be terrified. So they hide in the trees, which is really a silly thing to do. But this might just be another clue that not much time has passed and that the popular image of Adam and Eve enjoying casual walks with God in the garden prior to their rebellion is more fantasy than fact. This interrogation is not a fact-finding hearing. Rather, the divine judge seeks to draw out a confession. When he asks Adam, where are you, he's not asking for coordinates on a map or a street address. He's asking, what happened to you? Why are you hiding? Explain yourself. Give an account. That he summons the man, specifically, implies the man's greater responsibility and that the man rightly represents his wife. Even though the narrative of the couple's rebellion featured the serpent's conversation with the woman, Moses highlighted Adam's presence with the woman, and he is responsible. Moreover, it was to him that God originally spoke before his wife even existed. The man does not come out with a very good confession, however. In fact, at first, he merely explains why he was hiding. In verse 10, he first pointed out that he heard the sound of God in the garden. This is ultimately what drove him into hiding. It doesn't seem like, at least the way Adam states this, that he was hiding because he felt guilty. Rather, the manner of God's presence was terrifying. Yes, God had come to judge. And yes, the man and his wife are guilty. But it seems that Adam's first concern is not with his guilt. He says he was afraid when he heard God's presence because he was naked. I guess he recognized that the fig leaves aren't going to protect him from the divine judge should he prove to be angry. If he didn't want his wife looking at him in his nakedness, then he certainly doesn't want the creator looking at him in this state, even though God created him naked in the first place. Notice also that Adam is here answering only for himself. He says, I hid myself. He's not particularly concerned with his wife here. He's not afraid for her sake, only for himself. He has become utterly self-absorbed, so much for becoming one flesh. God's response comes in the form of back-to-back questions. First, who told you that you were naked? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't ask, how'd you figure out that you were naked? Or, why is your being naked a problem? The divine judge knows that there is another voice at play, and that Adam has listened to this other voice, to his own shame and destruction. And in line with this, the divine judge immediately gets to the point, knowing that the other voice must have pressed the man to disobey the one prohibition the Lord had spoken to him. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's first response to the divine judge's first question didn't come right out with a confession. Adam is him hawing around, concealing his sin. He's come out from behind the trees And his fig leaves aren't working too well at concealing his shameful state from the all-seeing eyes of the divine judge. But he hasn't yet volunteered the vital information. This information, the divine judge already knows. 
But he asks the critical follow-up question to drive Adam to to the place of confession. The man's response is the original blame-shifting response, attempting to turn the interrogator's spotlight on both the woman and the divine judge himself. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Finally, at the end, he does indeed confess, but first he throws his wife under the bus. Adam's first recorded words, if you remember, were a poem celebrating the excellence of his wife. Now, perhaps on the very next day, almost his very next recorded words are abusive words, completely disregarding the trouble she's in, still not seeking to protect her, apparently caring not one whit for her well-being. And with it all, he attempts to throw a side-eyed glance of judgment against the divine judge himself. You gave her to me, God. Didn't you know she was like this? Didn't you know how weak she is? Didn't you know that she'd do this to me? He's basically saying, why are you mad at me? This is all your fault. How like the serpent Adam has become. The serpent persuaded Eve to view the abundant provision of God as insignificant compared with the one thing withheld. The serpent implied that God was a liar, and the woman came to believe its perspective. Adam originally recognized his wife as a wonderful gift of God, but now he views her as a devilish enemy who has ruined his life. And he no longer views God as the good creator of all good things, the provider of abundant life, the God of all delights. The dark power speaking through the serpent will later be known as the accuser, and we can hear the accusers hissing in Adam's words. The divine judge calls the woman to the stand to account for her husband's accusation. Apparently, the divine judge casually overlooks the man's slight toward himself and gets on with business. The woman seeks to pass the buck as well. God simply asks, what is this that you have done? Her response, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She gives the same simple confession at the end, but not before she points her finger at the serpent. Though both Adam and his wife come around to admit that they ate the fruit, both also refuse to accept personal responsibility for their actions. She was indeed deceived, but that does not excuse her. Both Adam and his wife do tell the truth, after all, so they don't further compound their guilt, even though their confessions here are less than adequate. Nevertheless, the divine judge moves directly into the sentencing stage, and he deals first with the serpent. Notice that there is no interrogation of the serpent. The serpent is given no opportunity to confess or give an account. The divine judge simply and clearly curses the serpent. The serpent uh, is, is going to be the only personal entity cursed in this account. The divine judge dismisses him. And one commentator has suggested the manner of this shows God's disdain for this creature. Look at verses 14 and 15. Yahweh Elohim said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I hope you can see in your English Bibles the poetic form in which the divine judge pronounces a sentence for each offender. 
as often in prophetic oracles later in Scripture, they are delivered in poetic form. Thus, as in all poetry, we should expect some figures of speech. In the first line of verse 14, the divine judge simply says, because you have done this, the this is presumably deceiving the woman. The divine judge pronounces a perpetual curse against the serpent and implicitly against all the land animals and all livestock. We can probably assume that this extends to all animal life, birds and sea creatures as well. This curse is not a punishment for animal wrongdoing per se. Though the dark power inhabiting this serpent is morally culpable and will experience a particular eternal punishment, the serpent and all the other animals are not. Thus, we need to think carefully about what it means for the divine judge to pronounce a curse against animals. This curse is intended to communicate a reminder to humanity. In this vein, we can observe that in this section, the Lord does not curse humanity. Only the animals and the ground are explicitly cursed. The Lord will curse humans at various times using this exact phrase, cursed are you. But there is no curse pronounced against all of humanity as a whole. There is punishment that has lasting effects for humanity, but that is not the same thing as a divine curse. However, the serpent is uniquely cursed, cursed to a greater degree, and the curse extends to the supernatural entity controlling this particular serpent. First, the curse of the serpent has to do with its movement and its diet. It will slither on its belly and it will eat dust. Because this is poetry and contains two well-known figures of speech in the ancient world, we might not need to take this literally as though we are being told that snakes originally had legs and the reason they now slither is as a punishment. Rather, if we recognize this curse as providing a perpetual message for humanity, it doesn't matter whether or not we conclude that the Lord's curse transformed the physical stature of the serpent perpetually. That is irrelevant. When we see snakes slithering on their bellies, we humans are to be reminded of the promised defeat of the spiritual entity that controlled this particular serpent. Likewise, eating the dust probably doesn't literally refer to the serpent's diet. Nevertheless, the reference to eating is important, even if metaphorical. Since it led the woman to sin by eating, its punishment is worded in terms of eating. Snakes are typically carnivorous. And commonly in the Bible and in the ancient world, and even today, the concept of eating dust refers to someone who has been utterly defeated and debased. Thus, we have a picture here of humiliation and defeat. The humiliation and defeat of the spiritual power that controlled this particular serpent. Thus, when we see snakes, they're slithering through the dust, should communicate a message to us, reminding us of the devil's doom. But it's verse 15 that is most important. The divine judge sentences the serpent to be in constant conflict with the woman. From reading the previous paragraph, we would think that the woman had formed an alliance with the serpent. And in a sense, that is what happened. The woman followed the lead of the serpent. She yielded to its temptation. She believed its word against God's word. Provocatively, we could say that she accepted the mark of the beast. The serpent and the spiritual entity empowering the serpent certainly seems to have worked to draw her allegiance away from God. 
But the divine judge indicates that that alliance is not going to happen. Instead, there will be perpetual conflict. But are we talking about snakes and women? Maybe. It's not universally true, however, that women and snakes don't get along. But again, that's not the point the Lord is driving at. He presses on in his cursing to speak of offspring or seed. This word translated seed or offspring is super important. We'll be tracking its development through the book of Genesis as Moses has threaded the storyline of Genesis largely through the production of offspring. That's why genealogies are an important feature of the book. We'll return to this theme over and over again, but next week we will provide a bit of an overview. Sometimes the word offspring is a collective noun, referring to multiple descendants. And sometimes it is a pure singular, referring to one specific descendant, whether the immediate son or daughter, or a son or daughter to come later on in the future. The word lends itself to layers of meaning and plays on the word. And that's what we have to wrestle with here. The divine judge decrees conflict and hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Now, at a first reading, we could be thinking about all snakes versus all people, right? But other parts of Scripture make it clear that we should understand the offspring of the serpent to refer to people. And the offspring of the woman, of course, also refers to people. Thus, the merging of the identity of the serpent with the identity of Satan is probably intended by the Lord here, though it is only seen clearly as we move forward in God's progressive revelation in Scripture. Thus, the offspring of the serpent refers to the plural spiritual descendants of the spiritual entity controlling the serpent. So when Eve gives birth to Cain... She wouldn't have known what he would become. And we readers initially assume that he's an offspring of the woman, because literally he is. But in the New Testament, John clearly identifies Cain as of the evil one. But we could gather that on our own from his serpent-like murder of his brother and his hostile response to God himself in Genesis 4, which is how John drew that conclusion himself. Nevertheless, Eve might have wondered if he would be the single offspring mentioned in the next line of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These two lines are so important in the overall biblical storyline that we're going to revisit them next week and seek to draw out their full significance. For now, we simply observe that there is anticipation of a singular male descendant of the woman who will strike a blow to the head of the serpent, or more likely, the spiritual entity controlling the serpent. But the serpent's descendants will be humans who will share the serpent's murderous, deceptive, destructive tendencies. Those who reject God's word the way the serpent got Eve to do in the first place. Then we are introduced to a single male descendant of Eve, a human who will be born sometime in the future. From her vantage point, it could be her firstborn, Cain, or it could be a distant descendant born hundreds, if not thousands of years later. But if this descendant is to come in the distant future, then whose head will he strike? The singular your here, the one whose head will be struck, cannot be the serpent in the Garden of Eden. 
Suddenly, the Lord addresses personally and directly the spiritual entity who controlled the serpent, the one the Bible later identifies clearly as Satan. The Lord doesn't completely unmask Satan here, but he does hint toward his presence. And Moses leaves it at a hint. But Adam and Eve hear this curse, it seems. In the midst of this judgment curse, the divine judge has included a word of hope, a promise of ultimate final deliverance. And Adam and Eve have a new opportunity to believe God's word. And it seems that they do. This promise has often been called by Christians the Proto-Evangelium, a Greek word meaning first gospel. It is this promise that grows throughout the Old Testament, developing into the multifaceted portrait of the Messiah. Next week, we'll explore this in more detail. From that day on, every baby born, for every baby born, parents could wonder, would this baby be offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman? And for every male baby born, parents could wonder, would this baby boy be the one to strike down the serpent and its master? The Bible identifies the serpent slayer, the head crusher, as Jesus. He strikes Satan with a fatal blow, even as Satan strikes him with a fatal blow. More on that next week. With this good news in the background, the divine judge turns to the woman and communicates her punishment in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Controversy swirls around the meaning of this verse, particularly the second half. Let's observe, first of all, what's missing here. What's not said that is said to both the man and the serpent. There is no because here. The divine judge doesn't tie her punishment specifically to a particular act the way he does with the serpent and with the man. Nevertheless, punishment is being meted out here, and it is connected with her role in the rebellion. One of the woman's created roles was to partner with the man so that they together could multiply. God had blessed the couple back in chapter 1, saying, be fruitful and multiply. That would require the couple to unite sexually in order to produce children, to produce offspring. So, in the previous verses, the woman has been already ensured that she will indeed have offspring. But now, in this verse, the divine judge announces that he is multiplying her pain in producing those offspring. Now, while we are probably right to recognize the physical pain experienced by most mothers in delivering babies being described here, the wording refers to more than this. The word pain does not primarily denote physical pain. It's a word for anxious toil, stress and difficulty, emotional pain and grief. And the word translated childbearing probably refers to the whole process of child rearing. Thus, the pain being announced here includes infertility, miscarriages, the loss of children, the anxiety all mothers experience toward their babies, both while inside the womb and after they've been born, as well as the grief of seeing our children follow the ways of the serpent. And yes, it also includes those grievous labor pains. But the Lord doesn't here use the normal word for labor pains that appears so frequently in Scripture. 
Instead, he uses this unique word for pain that he can use for both the man's pain in the following section and the woman's pain associated with her role in child rearing. There may be a further reason for using this particular word. An original listener would have caught the sound similarity between this word for pain and the word translated tree. Thus, one commentator has attempted to reproduce in English the wordplay that might be there. It was the woman's interaction with a certain tree that resulted in this trauma related to child rearing. I think it's helpful to ask the question, how do we see this punishment reflected in the book of Genesis? I think we should expect it to show up in the experience of women in Genesis, and I believe we do. Think of all the women who are referred to as barren, at least initially in Genesis, and at least one mother in Genesis dies in childbirth. It's clear in Genesis that God must open the womb for a woman to conceive a baby with her husband. It seems likely to me that birthing a baby would have been a physically painful experience even without this punishment from the Lord but it probably wouldn't have included the kind of fear and the risk of death and damage that's always now. He multiplies the pain of childbirth and childrearing. That pain, that trauma, that emotional anxiety was vastly increased because of this punishment from the Lord. The Lord has punished humanity, not just the woman, but humanity, such that giving birth is not a guarantee. And the process for most women, involves physical pain, anxiety, and various forms of distress. Said simply, it's stinking hard to raise children in this world. Can I get an amen? And God decreed it would be so as a punishment for the grievous rebellion of the first woman believing the word of the serpent and rejecting God's word. But a second punishment is expressed here, and it touches the woman's relationship with her husband. This is where we may see a more explicit connection to her involvement in the rebellion. As she was deceived by the serpent, she exercised authority over her husband in an inappropriate way, leading him to rebel against God. The translation of verse 16 continues to be debated. The ESV controversially made a change to their own translation a few years ago in this verse. What was in a footnote is now in the text. Previously, the ESV read, similar to most other English versions, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The current edition of the ESV has instead, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The translation of the second line is not really much of an issue, though interpreting the meaning is still debated. The word translated desire is the, prob- the real problem. It's a rare Hebrew word, and so it's difficult to pin down what kind of desire the Lord is referring to here. A suggestion made by one of my professors at Wheaton, Dr. John Walton, in his Genesis commentary is intriguing to me and seems to make a lot of sense. I certainly don't line up with Dr. Walton on a number of his conclusions or his methods, but he is a helpful scholar nonetheless and a good Christian man. He suggests that this particular word might refer to instinct. Let's test this thought on the two occurrences of this word in Genesis. As has often been noticed, the parallel in Genesis 4-7 is quite exact. After Cain has become angry because God has not accepted his sacrifice, God speaks to him, saying in part, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Here we have the first occurrence of the word sin in the Bible. And this is also the first occurrence of a biblical writer using a figure of speech to characterize sin as an active entity. We're perhaps familiar with Paul doing this in Romans chapters 5 through 8. But the Lord does something very similar here. Whereas Paul describes sin as a kind of queen, ruling, enslaving, and reigning, the Lord here characterizes sin as a vicious animal seeking to devour its prey. Its prey is Cain. So sin's desire, sin's instinct, as represented in a wild animal, is to devour Cain. But the Lord insists that Cain must, has the responsibility to rule over, to master to hunt down and pounce down and overcome this animal called sin. This verse can help us see what the Lord is saying to the woman in Genesis 3.16. However, rather than treat these as exact parallels, we need to also recognize the differences between them. God is addressing the woman about her own instinctual desire in chapter 3. In chapter 4, God is addressing Cain about sin's metaphorical instinctual desire toward him. In Genesis 3.16, Walton suggests that we should hold the two parts of the verse tightly together, which is generally a good idea, so that we're reading about the woman's instinctual desire to bear children. For that instinct to be satisfied, she will always be dependent on a man. And God's design is that she should be dependent on her husband. Thus, the punishment here may simply be an amped-up urgency that women will experience to have their husbands participate in the conception and raising of children. The other side of the coin is going to be that the husband will not always be willing to participate. There's some examples in Genesis of this reality. In Genesis 38, we meet Onan, who refused to father offspring that would be counted as his dead brothers. Then when God struck him dead for his wicked refusal... Judah himself sinned by withholding his third son from Tamar, and Tamar's instinctual desire, which was also labeled by the text as righteous and would produce offspring that would ultimately be in the line of the Messiah, her righteous desire drove her to an unrighteous method, tricking Judah into conceiving sons with her. Or consider Sarai's pressing Abram to sleep with her Egyptian slave, Hagar, so that Hagar's child might count as her own. Then when Abram obeys her and produces a son with Hagar, Sarai gets mad at Abram. Or consider how in the absence of husbands, we can see this instinctual desire distorted and depraved in the actions of Lot's two daughters. They essentially rape their father in order to conceive children. And I wonder if we see Genesis 3.16 also playing out in Genesis 30 between Rachel and Leah and their husband Jacob. After Rachel had, for a long while, had no children with Jacob, while Leah had conceived multiple with Jacob, in Genesis 30, verse 1, we read, she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die! Like his ancestor Adam, he gets angry and ultimately blames God for this state of affairs. Rachel wants offspring so badly that she tells him to sleep with her female slave, and any children conceived would count as Rachel's, just like their ancestor Abram with Hagar. During this time, Leah had stopped bearing children, and so she played the same game, having Jacob sleep with her female slave so that any children conceived would count as Leah's. Then in the weird Mandrake episode, Leah chastises her sister for stealing her husband. Is it any wonder that God designed for one man to be married to one woman? 
The last part of the divine judge's statement in Genesis 3.16 is not so much a punishment as it is a prediction. In reaction to the wife's instinctual desire to have children, the husband will move toward ruling his wife, ruling over her instead of ruling with her as God had designed. He'll abuse his God-given authority and extend it into abuse and exploitation. We see something of this in Abraham putting Sarah in danger to save his own skin by publicly presenting her to foreigners as his sister instead of his wife. Man and woman's alienation is not caused by God's judgment. Rather, it began when their eyes were opened after eating the fruit in disobedience to God. In that moment, they hid from each other. And as the man blamed the woman before the divine judge, so began male attempts to dominate and damage their own wives, as well as other women. But the divine judge saves his last word of punishment for Adam, and it's the longest and the most specific. Along the way, the divine judge also pronounces a curse on all of creation. Look at verses 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's fundamental sin was obeying his wife instead of obeying God. It was Adam who directly heard God prohibit him from eating fruit from the knowing good and evil tree. We'll find other occasions in Genesis where listening to the voice of one's wife is problematic. There's a good marriage joke here, but I'll leave it alone. Adam submitted to his wife. We don't know what she said to him. But we know whatever she said prompted him to disobey God's prior voice. Because of Adam's disobedience, God curses the ground. Another play on words is in effect here, as Adam and the Hebrew word for ground are related. Adam sinned and the Adamah is cursed. However, in the poetry expressed here, this probably also is a figure of speech. Ground probably refers to the whole of creation. The entire universe is cursed. This is how Paul understands it, at least, according to Romans 8.20. It's likely that Paul reads the book of Ecclesiastes, recognizing its reflections on the futility or vanity of every endeavor under the sun as an outworking of this curse in Genesis 3. Thus, Paul reads Genesis 3.17-19 through the lens of Ecclesiastes and speaks of creation's bondage to corruption as a result of God's subjecting the entire created order to futility, vanity, emptiness. This means that Adam's sin didn't change the nature of creation, but God's curse of judgment did. Thus, God's curse is the reason why the universe doesn't work like it's supposed to, like it was designed to. Nevertheless, the Lord's curse does focus specifically on the ground and humanity's relationship to it. As there is pain for the woman, so there is also pain for the man. And again, this is not merely the physical pain often associated with manual labor. It is labor pains of a different sort. And notice that it is tied to what the man will eat. As Desmond Alexander puts it in the ESV Study Bible, because he has eaten that which was prohibited to him, he will have to struggle to eat in the future. 
Notice also the phrase, all the days of your life, echoing the curse of the serpent. This repetition ties together the man's punishment with the serpent's curse. Likewise, as the serpent is doomed to eat dust, so the man is doomed to return to the dust. And if the man returns to the dust, then the dust that the serpent eats is man. In the poetry of this whole passage, it's likely we should make this connection. The hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent points to Satan's power over death. Peter will compare Satan to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Serpents deceive and dragons devour, as one writer summarizes the biblical connection between serpents, dragons, and Satan. The ground is now in conflict with humanity, and the ground wins. As every human being now faces physical death, which includes bodily decay in the dust. As women will struggle to bear children, so men will struggle to draw food from the ground. Pain and emotional turmoil will dominate human life. As someone has summarized, life is hard and then you die. The refusal of the ground to produce food is reflected in the book of Genesis as well. Frequently, we will read about famines and food shortages in various places. The book of Genesis concludes with a severe famine, serving as the dark backdrop for God's wonderful sovereignty, graciously sustaining and rescuing His people. Nevertheless, there is hope in the midst of this punishment. As with the punishment of the woman, where hope is centered in the promise that she would indeed produce offspring, so also the ground will produce food. Man will sweat for it and will earn it through painful toil, but nevertheless, life continues. Though the man and his wife have died, as God said they would, in their alienation from him, there is redemption by God's grace and life coming out of this death. And through judgment, God promises the hope of ultimate salvation so that His glory will indeed fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. But how? More on that next week. Verses 20 and 21, we get a kind of parenthetical pair of remarks. We read about a new name and new clothes. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh Elohim made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The man names his wife Eve. The Hebrew name sounds very similar to the word for life. And Moses explains that she would be the mother of all living people. Moses then inserts the comment in the second half of verse 20 to explain why Adam would give her such a name. She has been the mother of all living by Moses' day. Adam is believing God's promise of life continuing. In the face of the threat, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam has now listened to the voice of Yahweh Elohim. He has heard the promise of offspring. He has heard the promise of food, and he has believed. He had first named her woman, highlighting her origin coming out of himself. But now he names her Eve, highlighting God's promise of future life. Then in verse 21, we see the divine judge's kindness in providing new clothes. How he must have pitied them in their pathetic fig leaf loincloths. They had very crudely covered the nakedness of their sexual organs, attempting to hide themselves from each other's judging gaze. Now, God gets back to work, creating something new for them. 
He had rested from his acts of creation, but now he makes them garments, tunics made from animal skins, much more durable, much more effective in providing a measure of physical protection to their most vulnerable body parts. Now, it is often said that this is a picture of sacrifice. After all, God had to kill animals to provide this clothing. However, as far as I can tell, the Bible never makes this connection explicit, so I'm a bit hesitant to make that jump. We read of animal skins very specifically, uh, rarely connected with the sacrificial system. And when they are referred to in connection with sacrifice, they're typically being burned outside the camp. In other words, they're not fundamental to sacrifice. They're secondary. I think this is an occasion of reading something in that Moses did not intend. If there is an importance to the animal skins, I'd suggest we look for the more dominant reality uh, that's referred to in Moses' writings when animal skins are referred to. Animal skins were used to form the tabernacle. So that the implication might be here that God has outfitted Adam and Eve so that they are fit to continue fellowshipping with him, to continue being having God's presence with them like he would be in the tabernacle later. But that has to be qualified by what happens next. The divine judge exiles the couple. So he clothes them, graciously improving their, on their ability to cover their shame, but they are not fit to dwell in his holy place. Nevertheless, he may yet come to dwell with them in one form or another. Then Yahweh Elohim said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh Elohim sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the revelation of God's inner dialogue, or trialogue if you prefer, we get a confirmation that something the serpent said was kind of true, but only kind of. Adam and Eve, humanity, and now all their offspring are like one of us which as a Trinitarian Christian, I do take as a Trinitarian self-reference by the divine judge here. I'm stubborn like that. They are like one of us in the sense that they now know good and evil. As we discussed last week, this probably means that they have chosen to determine what is good and what is evil independently of what God said. I suggested that they did not experience this change because of eating the fruit. Rather, they experienced this change because of the choice they made to eat the fruit. Pastor Kent Hughes describes it as a perverted godlikeness. For now that man's life is based on the devil's lie, he calls good evil and evil good. Because of humanity's created limitations, they could never, were never intended to have the same capacity as God to rightly determine good and evil. What they believed the serpent to promise is not what actually happened. Even though the Lord here uses the same words as the serpent, he means something different by them. He plays with the snake's words the way the snake played with his words. Then the Lord highlights the danger that they could now choose to eat fruit from the tree of life, and if they did so, then they'd live forever, and that would be a bad thing. Ironically, they would live forever in a state of death. Make no mistake, Adam and Eve have already died. They have cut themselves off from the Lord. And now he is going to send them out of his presence. 
As Eden was a kind of holy of holies, the garden was a sanctuary, a kind of holy place where God's people could have enjoyed communion and fellowship with him. Now they are to be exiled out into the world, banished and barred from re-entering the holy space he had created for them. Now, Adam won't physically die for another 930 years. That's a long time to live. But God is sending them away as a protective measure, as John mentioned earlier, as a kind of mercy, not strictly as a punishment. They have already alienated themselves from him. They have already experienced death. They might look alive and are alive physically, but as one writer indicates, death from the biblical perspective includes being cut off from the source of life. Cut flowers maintain the appearance of life for a while, but are they alive once severed from the stem? The divine judge thus drives them out, expels them, exiles them from the garden, but he sends them out with a job. They still are called and commissioned to work the ground in obedience to him. But the ground they will be working will be the cursed ground, the ground that resists, the ground that fights back with thorns and thistles, not the lush, productive, and beautiful garden that God himself planted. While the job of working the ground continues, they lost their other job. They can no longer be guardians of the garden. Now the divine judge commissions cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the garden, specifically to keep Adam and Eve and their descendants out. As long as the cherubim stand guard, no human will re-enter God's presence without death. These real cherubim only maintain their guard duty for, at most, a couple thousand years. As the divine judge will send a flood to destroy the earth, the garden will be swept away. But when the tabernacle is built, images of cherubim will be prominent in and around the Holy of Holies. Likewise, when the temple is built, cherubim will be featured on the walls and in the Holy of Holies itself, and especially on the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. This was to remind God's people that access to God's presence was barred, and those who would enter could only do so on pain of death. Wondrously, in the Old Testament, God accepted the death of animals in the place of sinners so that sinful people could indeed live in relationship with God. But that wasn't good enough. The death of countless animals could never ultimately and totally pay the penalty for human sin. Only a human death, only the death of a sinless human, a perfectly obedient to God human, could truly and totally substitute for sinful people. Thus, when that righteous man, Jesus offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice. The cherubim-covered curtain in the temple was torn in two, ripped in half from top to bottom by no human hand, signifying to the people that access to God is no longer barred. The sacrificial payment has been accepted. The only human sacrifice that God would ever accept, the sacrifice of his own son, had removed the barrier so that all who trust in him can live with God forever. Every human being born in this world has been born outside of the garden. We are conceived and born rebels against God's kingdom, conceived and born outsiders. But God has made a way through Jesus for rebels to be redeemed, for outsiders to come inside. 
He welcomes sinners. He welcomed me. And he will welcome you. As French theologian Henri Blochet writes, in all experiences of pain, discomfort, discord, and separation, we can recognize a kind of funeral procession. The narrative of Genesis 3 shows us that the threat, you shall die, is fulfilled in a multiplicity of ways by a whole succession of disastrous changes. This is why Paul can say that we are all, we were all, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Life outside the Garden of Eden is death, but there's no going back to the Garden. Instead, we find life now inside of Christ. In Him alone can there be life, eternal life, abundant life. When we trust in Jesus, we pass out of death and into life, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Rebels become saints. Dead people live. Let's abandon the ways of the serpent. Let's give up on the desire to determine what is good and what is evil apart from God's word. His word alone is sufficient to shape our understanding of good and evil. And his spirit alone is powerful enough to enable us to live out the good and reject the evil. The new clothes of animal skins were certainly an upgrade for Adam and Eve. But those new clothes pale in comparison to our new clothes. The new clothes of Animal skin foreshadowed, if nothing else, the way that we now put on Christ himself. And when he returns, we'll put on our resurrection overclothes. We'll be raised from the dead, and together we will make up the pure and spotless bride, whose white dress is a composite symbolizing all the righteous deeds of the saints. For those of us us who have been clothed with Christ, we need have no fear of the divine judge. We will stand before his judgment seat, but we will stand, unlike Adam and Eve, clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. No shame, no fear, no guilt, no condemnation. For those who don't know Jesus, you'll be wearing your fig leaves on that day. Your fig leaves will consist of whatever efforts you've put forth to cover your own shame, to cover your own sin. Your best efforts to be a good person will be like fig leaves before him. Do you think you'll fare better than Adam and Eve? Flee to Christ. Receive the clothing he offers himself and his righteousness. Abandon your own efforts to be good enough. Jesus was more than good enough and he offers himself to you. Receive him and you, can have no, you need have no fear of the divine judge. In fact, you can even draw near to the divine judge as your very own father. Isn't that amazing? Would you pray with me? Father, we look at these early chapters in Genesis and chapter 3 is a grievous chapter. Tragic in so many ways. But thank you for communicating such bright hope in the midst of the darkness of the rebellion of our first parents. We grieve and we sin and we, fr- we are frustrated with the consequences of their sin, of their rebellion. But we thank you that you have remedied it all. You have given us the one thing that we needed. And so we thank you for sending your own son to be a human being, not tainted by the rebellion of Adam and Eve, but to actually 
come as a second Adam to do the right thing, to make the right choices at every turn, and then ultimately to give his life for those of us who haven't done that. What wondrous grace. What hard-won mercy. We thank you for offering it to us freely. We pray that as we seek to live in this world, in our redeemed natures, that you would equip us, call us, draw us away from the serpent's ways. The world around us follows the mold, follows the prince of the power of the air, just like we used to do before we trusted in Jesus. Help us not to be pulled back toward that. Protect us, preserve us, as you have promised you will. Help us to rest in your promises and be motivated to eagerly, actively pursue obedience to you in every area of our lives. So thank you for the all-encompassing salvation you've provided. And yes, indeed, thank you for the hope of not merely returning to Eden, but returning to going somewhere that's better than Eden, Eden 2.0. Eden as it was intended to grow and develop and shape into a new creation. That's where we're headed. That's always been the plan from before the foundation of the world. Thank you that your plan has not been derailed, not for a moment. Your time schedule is right on time. And your, your son's return is on the calendar. And so we anticipate that day with great anticipation. And we pray that we would live faithful lives until that day. For Jesus' sake, amen.